Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. What seems like a long time ago, we recorded a series dealing with jury trials and criminal cases. It really kind of was a long time ago. I think it was BC before COVID. But anyway, one of those episodes dealt with what we're going to deal with again today, and that is charge conferences. And we also touched a little bit on closing arguments. That's right. We recommend the series that we affectionately refer to trial as trial of the criminal case from beginning to end. Dun, dun, dun. But Tane, we had a listener recently request that we address the topic of charge conferences in a bit more detail. So here we are. Yeah. One of the things we have not done is a corresponding series on the trial of a civil case. The two are similar, but there are some important differences. So today we're going to touch on charge conferences in general and not solely focus on criminal cases. Thanks to our listener who requested this episode. It really helps getting feedback from you guys and uh, learning what you like to have us chat about. You too can have a topic discussed on the Good Judgment Podcast by Thing 1 and Thing 2. Uh, just send us an email with your ideas or thoughts. Send it to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We have received a number of great ideas for episode topics from several of you out there in listener land. Hey, Tane, speaking of that... Speaking of what? Oh, you mentioned Dr. Seuss, emails and wherever listener land is in that last comment. Yeah, yeah. Listener land. You know, listener land. Anyway, the land where listeners are located. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so we had a listener, and, and we're going to do a little shout out, Carly from South Carolina. Woohoo! Go, Carly. Write us with some great ideas. Who knew this little podcast thing that Doug Ashworth helped us dream up would reach folks in a whole nother state? I mean... You act like we're on an AM radio station or something, Wade. Look, the Good Judgment podcast is on all of the major podcast platforms. I mean, I doubt they care, but people could listen in Nebraska or Sicily. I mean, seriously, we're incredibly grateful to our loyal audience. So here in Georgia and in other states and anybody who might be listening from another country, hey, we appreciate you. Gracias. Okay, thanks, Carly, and everyone else who listens to us, wherever you might be out there in listener land. Let's get to charge conferences in criminal and civil cases. Take us away, Tane. Sure. So jury charges, uh, the, the bane of a trial judge's existence, quite frankly. Um, you know, trials are weird from the judge's standpoint. The judge is pretty involved at the beginning of the trial and at the end of the trial. And then in the middle, we just kind of watch and see how, how things develop. But we should strive to be almost invisible during that part of the trial. So uh, there are a couple of preliminary procedural issues to address regarding jury charges and charge conferences. And we'll try to touch on those. So in a criminal case, Tane, remember, the charge conference must be conducted in the presence of the defendant. We're not going to read all these case sites because reading law during a podcast is not awesome. So true. So we're not going to, but I'm telling you, this, this outline has a lot of sites in it. If you ever need this for any reason, please go pull one of these uh, episode notes off of the, the uh, website, goodjudgepod.com. But in a criminal case, it has to be done in the presence of the defendant. Now, we're going to sound like a broken record. We've said that, I don't know, 112 times. Right. But there are enough cases still reversed on appeal that somebody is missing this message about yeah. the defendant's presence. Yeah, let me just take a quick detour here, guys. 
If you aren't absolutely certain it's something that can be done outside the presence of the defendant, don't do it. And offhand, I really can't think of anything that shouldn't be done outside that should be done outside the presence of the jury. Can you wait? I mean, I've heard people talk about what time do you want to break for lunch or, you know, stuff like that, purely scheduling issues. But even that, I just wouldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've called counsel up to the bench and said, "Hey, uh, what time do you guys want to break for lunch?" And then immediately I turn and say, what we just talked about up here was what time we wanted to break for lunch. So it made a good record. So anyway, just be aware of that, folks, that uh, if you have an urge to do something and the defendant is not present, you might want to think about that again. Anyway, I digress. But that's, that's why I just simply don't have bench conferences. I, I don't, I don't want the defendant that close to me. I don't want my court reporter trying to figure out how to, how to put a mic in front of everybody. I mean, you have logistical problems, security problems, and there's just too many reasons to just send the, I mean, not to just send the jury out and say, hey, we need to talk about something. Jury, step out for me for just a minute. This will be a short recess. Yeah, and let's just be honest, folks. The jury doesn't mind having a break most times anyway. A couple of people will go to the restroom. A couple of people will get coffee. Everybody will be happy. So back to charge conferences, which was our topic. Oh, yeah. Um, it's 100% clear that the defendant has nothing really to add to this conversation, okay? The defendant's presence doesn't because he's going to make some uh, really unique argument or something as to why there should be a lesser included offense charged yeah. or whatever. Yeah, quite frankly, I'm going to tell you, I usually let the lawyers uh, take their jackets off and loosen their ties if they want to, if they happen to be males. And, uh, you know, we get a little casual during the charge conference because normally not even the most avid spectator stays during the uh, charge conference. It's funny. It's like a uh, Olympic sprint's about to start. Somebody shoots. When you say charge conference, right. it's like somebody <laughs> shot the gun and everybody flees. Yeah, usually my bailiff goes, oh, you don't need me for this, do you, Judge? <laughs> no, you can go too. <laughs> do not allow that brief delay or inconvenience of having the bailiff go get the defendant or he might be in the back of the courtroom or maybe in a, in a secure facility. Don't When you need to make a quick, quick clarification about a charge or something from the charge conference, take that time and let somebody go get that defendant. They need to be present. Yeah, absolutely. If we don't if you don't remember anything from today's uh, podcast, that's the thing to remember. Bring the defendant, have the defendant present. So, another procedural issue. Uniform Superior Court Rule 10.3. All requests to charge shall be numbered consecutively on separate sheets of paper and submitted to the court in duplicate by counsel for all parties at the commencement of trial unless otherwise provided in a pretrial order. Provided, however, additional requests may be submitted to cover unanticipated points which arise thereafter. Now, I understand how bad it is to read law during this, but that's really a rule, so it's not quite a law, so it's not quite as bad. But listen, the rule is have them submit them prior to trial. I sometimes have them submit them even further in advance of trial, five days or so, because my staff attorney, and I'm blessed to have a really great staff attorney, Ryan, shout out, woo-hoo, um, he, he starts working on them early, and we want to make sure, you know, that we, that we know what we're doing. But uh, anyway, something, something to remember is that they are required at the beginning of trial. So th this, this really can be an issue. You know, Tame, during NJO, we talk about this can be a real problem because in criminal cases, we're sort of fighting two battles. We're trying to keep everybody in line with the rules and the statutes, but at the same time, we're trying not to create an ineffective assistance claim before we even get to a verdict. So, Tane, this can be a real problem in a civil case, too. 
that people don't submit the jury charges in advance. For example, there's some cases cited here where everybody knew the attorney's fees claim of one of the parties was going to be an issue in the case, but they didn't get a charge to the judge until after the evidence was closed. Judge doesn't give charge upheld on appeal. Yeah. I mean, it's it's in the rule, and the rule's there for a reason. So, you know, I, I'll just say this. I mean, one of the rules we always tell people at our new judge orientation is always remember that you were a, ju- or were a lawyer. Um, I, I'm just going to, true confession here, the very first case I ever tried on my own, uh, it was a case in federal court. It was a very last minute. I got sent out. Uh, we didn't know this case was going to be tried. Federal judges can do whatever they want. So on Friday, they told us to be there and be ready on Monday. And I showed up at federal court and they said, give us your jury charges. And I said, uh, <laughs> and I didn't have any. And I said, may I submit those at lunchtime, your honor? Cause I'm sure he could see the panic on my face. And I had to call back to the office and say, send me some pattern charges, send me anything on you something. got on something. Yeah, exactly. So they did. So, you know, there's a balance there. Uh, and, and as Wade said, you do have to think about the ineffective claim as well. So let's, now let's turn to criminal cases yeah. because in criminal cases, we are always guarding against that ineffective claim, ineffective assistance claim. But the appellate cases, they're there, Tane, where they say if you did not request a charge on accomplice um, corroboration or some of those other basic principles until after the, the evidence was closed or late in the game, that is absolutely a ground to to not allow it. Now, Tane, that rule did have one more provision, and it kind of said provided, however— if something comes up during the trial, then that is that's unanticipated. unanticipated. Right. That's right. So we have a case here um, where the defendant, you don't know if the defendant's going to testify or not. Right. And, and so, a request, and you sometimes don't know if he's if he is testifying what he's going to say if you're the lawyer. Right. And so the there's some cases here that say okay, that can't be anticipated because you don't know which decision and it's a constitutional right of the defendant. So you can't. I mean. If I have them both ways, and, and we're going to talk about how we do this in a minute, but I have them available if he testifies and if he doesn't testify, and then based upon the outcome, I'll scratch one and leave one. So. Sure. Yeah, and you hope most lawyers will do the same as they're getting ready for trial. And the case that we were talking about is that Murphy case, 270 Georgia, um, I guess that's 80. 880 in yeah. 1999 case. And that's just and the the court of appeal uh, the Supreme Court said look and that was Justice Hunstein said look you just there's you don't know so you can't hold them to that same standard relative to a defendant's decision to testify charge yeah and in that case it said yeah it's not error for the trial court to charge a lesser included offense or other charge for that matter without a pretrial request being made think about that um it's important those kinds of things come up at the, at the last minute sometimes. I mean, whether you're going to even ask for a uh, lesser included charge. So it, it makes sense that that's not something you have to anticipate and have those charges asked for prior to trial. But again, there are cases that we've cited throughout this outline that, that if you have an issue like this or if you want it in your trial outline, easy for you to go get, download at your leisure. So, Tane, if we're being candid, there are a couple reasons for this rule, right? Yeah, sure. Some obvious ones and some a little bit more subtle. The first first reason for that is 
the judge needs to prepare the charges and organize them in a manner that makes sense. And I mean, as a judge, I can tell you that my very first charge conference didn't go that well. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's a whole lot different being on, as we've said before, this side of the bench um, in every real, in every uh, part of the trial. And, and, and that was one of the things that, you know, it just didn't, it wasn't quite as organized as I would have liked it on my first trial. But it also helps, and as sort of a, one of the more subtle reasons for the rule, is it helps people know where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, are, are we going to ask for lesser included? Do we need to deal with consent? Um, you know, is there an issue of identification? Well, if you don't make a charge request on that, I'm going to kind of assume we're not going there. It must be something else we're going to do. Yeah, we're going to talk about this in, a, in another podcast that we hope you'll all tune in for. But uh, one of the things that we start doing as soon as we get these is trying to figure out what the verdict form might look like. And so that's one of those things that uh, the charges help you anticipate. Now, some lawyers, Tane, in the more modern era, I don't know about you, but I, I did some trial practice stuff in law school, and the, the younger lawyers seem to be um, – sold on this concept of a theme yeah oh yeah you gotta have a theme and gotta have a theme cheesy and this lets them i guess work their theme in you know what's going to come in what's not but anyway um while we appreciate these rules tain um requiring separate sheets of paper and duplicate and all of that separately numbered to be honest with you i don't use separate sheets of paper i don't use any sheets of paper yeah Mine are electronic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're we're pulling these. We're pulling the most current versions off of a, a, a tool that we get to use as judges called Sidebar, which is a, a judges only uh, uh, web net, so to speak. And we pull those things off of there just to make sure that we have the most current version of the charge. But but exactly. I mean, we we do it all electronically now, not using separate sheets of paper, as it says in the rule. We're going to discuss how we how we do charges, but you you send out charges with a jury, correct? Uh, yeah, I do now. You know, I, I had a period of time where I didn't send them out with a jury. My thought there was I thought it would confuse the jury and they'd start arguing over semantics and things. I'm just going to confess here. I was wrong, wrong, wrong. Since I started sending them out with a jury, I don't have nearly as many jury questions about charges. I don't ask get asked to be to recharge on things. Um, I think it's really good to send those charges out. But remember, that's something that's with totally within the judge's discretion. We both have colleagues that we will not name that I will say uh, generously are old school. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And they take a big old dusty binder and stick separate, separate sheets of paper behind this one and in front of that one and fold it in half. And yeah. I mean, to each his own. But lawyers, practice point, if you want to do me a favor, make me happy as a judge, how about sending me a word version of that? Absolutely. That I can cut and paste into my charges. Yeah. I mean, just... It's just a whole lot more helpful than Shepard. Yeah, and, it, in civil and uh, criminal cases, my pretrial order that gets sent out, you know, when we send out the the last order that goes out before trial, um, it, it reminds people to send in those jury charges. It asks them to give them to us in an electronic format and email it to my staff attorney, copying the other side so that they also have an electronic copy of it. I don't know the answer to this. Do you do that in a criminal case and a civil case? I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I just, well, it's, do you it, call it a pretrial order? Uh, no, no. And, and it's, um, it's really the notice that just, you know, is kind of my way of saying, Hey, everybody knew this case was set for trial and, and I have it down on paper. So yeah, we just send out an order to that effect. So let's pause and talk about why we do written charges. And you've, you've stolen some of that thunder because I have the same experience. I get far fewer jury uh, questions yeah. 
than some of my colleagues who don't use it. The other thing, and this might, I don't know if this is valid or not, and our friends on the appellate courts probably will tell us. And they all listen to this podcast. You know. Oh, yeah. They're you know all they're the first, this. you know, oh. 9 and 15 to, to download it, everybody. Absolutely. If I misstate something in my verbal charge, which you do have to read it, you don't get to, like, hand them a written charge and send them out. You have to read it. But if I misstate something, if I do an and instead of an or, they have the right document out with them. And there's a chance that it will save a misstatement or a typo or whatever you want to call it. I mean, a verbal typo. Yeah, there, there's no case law about that. But I agree with you, Wade. I think that there is a very good argument to be made that if they had the correct charge with them and they had any question about what that charge meant, they could look at it and that might save the case. It might. I'm, I'm not positive about that. Um, in our outline, we have the authority that allows you to, to uh, send out written charges even over objections. And remember, written charges are required in death penalty cases, so they must not be all bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, I, you know, I just I think all the way around, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense to send that out with the jury now. Like I said, it, it seems to uh, it gives me a lot of comfort knowing that they could look up a charge if they needed to or they could focus on something if they needed to. Just like having the indictment in the jury room makes sense. And that's something you're required to do by law as well. So let's talk about the how question. How do you do this? And I'll, yeah. I'll let me run a little bit with this because I sort of did this. What I did was I spent time and I developed a group of, I guess, core charges, jury charges that are arguably relevant in almost every case. Yeah, I do. I do the same thing. And then it's tough to do in civil now because, yeah. I mean, you could be trying a, a contract case right behind a condemnation, behind a car wreck, behind a medical malpractice. I mean, you know, right. it could be anything. Right. But in the in what I did was in the criminal cases, I prepared a set for one defendant male, one defendant female, multiple defendants. And so that I got verb tenses right and all of that stuff. It took a lot of time, but um, it was worth it because now my lawyers that appear in front of me, they know that they don't have to worry about finding jury charges on burden of proof, credibility of witnesses, um, you know, def defendant's choice not to testify. They don't have to worry about that. Yeah. And and I do something, too. And, and I know what the rule says about the charges being written and being on a separate sheet of paper. But I tell the lawyers in civil and criminal cases, if you want me to give a pattern charge and you want me to give the current version of the pattern charge, all you have to do is write the number down on a sheet of paper and the heading of that charge and give it to me, and I will look up the most current version of that pattern charge to give in the case. It's, it makes it easier on them, and you know, again, I don't know that that's 100% in line with the rule, but I also don't think it's a violation of the rule either. No, and I'm going to kind of go for, back to where you went about talking about your uh, grade A staff attorney. Yeah. Then I take all those required charges and my staff attorney, frankly, plugs them into the core set of my charges, but she will leave defendants request three, states request six, whatever, at the top. So I create a document that I will end up calling courts exhibit number one. And so I will hand it out during the charge conference, one to the court reporter, don't forget that person, one to each lawyer, one to my staff attorney, one to me. And then the beautiful part, Tane, is I don't have to go, does anybody have any objection to 1.1111789? Any objections on page one? Any objections on page two? Any objections on page three? Now, that 40-page document is probably going to become a 
15 or 20 page document by the time we get all the headers off and all the case sites off and all the duplicates out and all of that. But by and large, it has turned out to be a really positive thing and something that we use basically every time we go to trial. Yeah. So I do something really similar. I have uh, I have a set in criminal cases in particular, I have a set of charges that are called um, you know, court's usual charges or something like that. Court standard charges, I think is what it's entitled. And it's a list of things like, you know, the burden of proof charge, the pattern charge, the, the evidence charge, pattern charge, um, you know, those sorts of basic charges that would be asked for in almost every case and that I would certainly give in every case. And then at what my staff attorney does, a little bit similar to what yours does is, we also make a copy of the state's request to charge and a copy of the defendant's request to charge. But at the top, I have him write, you know, also is defendant's request yep. to charge number three. And, yep. and if, if both sides have asked for it, I just, as we go through the charge, say, you know, state's request number one is also defendant's request number three. I will give that charge both sides requested it. And we can move right on through that one. So what I do, once we have the charge conference and we've agreed on what we're going to charge, we finish closing arguments. The, my staff attorney is, has now sort of cleaned up that court's exhibit one and has put a cover sheet on it, Tane, that says, for Wade to sign, that says, this is the version I sent out with the jury on this date. Therefore, if there's multiple in the, the clerk's file, the one that I sent that has that cover sheet on it. So just an idea. Now, that's a great idea. I, I don't do it that way, but but I do like that idea. Um, we have a court's exhibit number, you know, whatever it is, one or two or whatever, that I say on the record, this is the version that's going out with the jury. It's marked as court's exhibit number two. But I, I like the fact that you actually put a signature on the one that goes with them. Now, I got to give a word of warning. And basically, um, I need to sort of admit something. Oops. Yep. I once did this exact process, and it has worked flawlessly, frankly, for years. But in the editing process, my wonderful staff attorney at the time accidentally deleted the beyond a reasonable doubt charge. I, do you give that one? I, I... <laughs> so I didn't catch it. Yeah. Lawyers didn't catch it. Nobody yeah. caught it until he was convicted and we came back on a motion for new trial. And I ended up having to grant a new trial. I looked everywhere. I see. I, I looked to see if I had, had sufficiently covered in the advance charges. It was just. It was just a mistake, and I hated it. And and it's a confession that I don't like to make, but it, it happened. And um, there were some other problems with that case. I'm not saying every time that happens, you got to grant a new trial, but yeah, I'm I'm going to march you through the streets, shouting shame, shame, shame. Thank in you. Just a few minutes, yeah, because none of us, none of the rest of us, have ever done anything like that. Just make sure the folks that are helping you editing, whether it be your staff attorney, your assistant, whatever, they understand we don't need stuff bolded, different fonts, bigger bigger fonts, underlined. Get rid of all that so that we don't overemphasize one issue over the other. Other than that, that's sort of how we do the, the, the charge conference. We go page by page, and we have a place to insert case-specific charges, and that's kind of where we are. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me say one other thing about that, too. Um, slow down, <laughs> you know, during this period, I mean, I think we're going to talk about that in a minute, but you know, go, go slow during all phases of this. Uh, it's, it's important and it's easy to miss stuff if you don't. 
Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So let's let people behind the curtain a little bit. You want to? Sure. So we draft these these outlines separately, and then we just show up and kind of send them to the other one and say, hey, you, you, want, you might want to print this. We're going to use it. Yeah. Literally what he just talked about, about the slowing down and going slow, is absolutely in here. <laughs> and it's just funny dang, how much I we just, think alike. Yeah, dang. I just shot, shot that down. Okay, go All ahead. Right. Go so ahead. the actual charge conference itself happens yeah. um, after the close of evidence, but before closing. Um, we all know that there are hundreds of different points that we could discuss here. I mean, let's just talk some of the more common jury charge issues that come up in charge conference, Tane, and, and we'll revisit some of our old friends, the plain error rule. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah, man. And other issues of my existence. On yeah. let, let me say one thing about that, too, before we go into this. The timing of the charge conference. Um, I try to, and I know you probably do the same thing. I mean, I, I try to... F- figure out a way that we can do it so that I can give the jury a break and we're not just holding them in the jury room while we're trying to do a charge conference. And I think that's important, not only for the jury, but for me, because then I don't feel so under the gun. You know, if we can attach it onto the lunch break and say, hey, y'all are getting a longer lunch break because we have a conference we need to do outside your presence or something like that. And then I don't feel like I got to hurry, hurry, hurry also. Absolutely. And that's a great point. Um, so the reason we can't go into depth about jury charge conferences and civil cases, like we said earlier, is because you'll have a tort case and a contract case and a condemnation case and whatever else. Understand that there are probably some basic charges that if you wanted to, credibility of witnesses and stuff, but there's even different burdens of proof and there's burdens of proof in defenses in civil cases and there's all of that. So I just don't think that it is realistic to try to do that in the civil case the procedure is same, the pretrial, getting the request, the having the conference at the close of evidence, but before closing arguments, all that's the same. Yeah. Do you, you don't have a core group in civil, do you? I don't. But what I will say is this, for, for you know, just help for everybody out there, for both people who are trying to formulate charges for a civil trial and judges who are, are listening to those, remember that the watchword is, it needs to be a correct statement of the law adjusted to the facts of the particular case. Because in a civil case, as we know, because there aren't as many pattern charges for the reasons that Wade just said, um, 
people are trying to formulate charges. So they're taking case law and turning it into a jury charge. So when you look at it, judges, and when you are looking at it, lawyers, remember, it just needs to be a correct statement of the current law, not some case from, you know, 1870. Uh, and it needs to be properly adjusted to the facts of the case. And that's really your watchword for what you're looking at. If it is both of those things, then it's probably a decent jury charge for, for that particular case. So, um, other than that, I don't have a lot for you. Wade's exactly right. Uh, but we can help you out in the criminal context. Let's talk about lesser included offenses. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Let's so this do. is a huge issue, and we're leading off with this because both the prosecution and the defendant can request a charge on a lesser included offense. The court can charge it on his or her own motion. And all the case law that supports that is is, is in the out, outline. And, and we know, Tane, what people who listen to this podcast, they think that there is a hard and fast rule that nobody told them. <laughs> right. That we always... About everything. Yeah. Not just this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but especially this. They're looking for that hard and fast rule. You always give this. You never give that. And folks, this is so fact dependent. It is. There's just no way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And again, you're looking for relevance. You're looking for, you know, what are the facts of this case? How was it indicted? What are the, you know, what are the words? I mean, there's all kinds of fact specific things. So, Tane, um, what if the charge that's being requested is not actually a lesser included charge of the offense that was indicted? Then that can be a problem, Wade. <laughs> that's the one hard and fast rule. Yeah. Now, I'll be honest with you, reckless conduct can be a lesser included offense of murder. I mean, you know, I mean, it can go all the way down, but um, there is a really good chart, Tane, in the, I guess, it, in the only, when I was writing this, the, edition of Daniel's criminal trial practice that I had on me was the 2020-2021 edition. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's still Appendix A in the 2022 edition, but at, basically there's a chart with case sites as to why um, criminal trespass is a lesser included of arson. And so it doesn't say what's not a lesser included. It says what is a lesser included. But it's a really good chart. You're exactly right way to go over and familiarize yourself with. Make sure that your uh, staff attorney, if you have one, is familiar with that. Or you lawyers out there who are looking at these things, look at it. Because sometimes there are things that seem like they might be a lesser included offense that aren't. And vice versa. Things that seem like they are not a lesser included offense and they actually are. So as a general rule, a trial, a trial court is required to give a charge on a lesser included offense if requested. And if there is any evidence, remember this phrase, however slight, to support such a charge. And you'll see some case sites there that are really good cases dealing with the murder versus voluntary manslaughter issue that unfortunately we're going to have to cover you know, exhaustively in today's episode. But when the evidence supports either that the crime charge was committed or no crime at all was committed, then the court's not required to give a lesser included offense charge. And we have some quotes from some of the cases that have that basically said there's no evidence of the lesser crime. Therefore, there's no way that you could charge that lesser that lesser crime. Excuse me. Now. There, you, it's not going to be error to, for, to charge on a lesser included offense, provided there are some facts to support it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and again, the rule is however slight those facts may be, if there are facts to support it, then the judge is, is, is right or it is appropriate for the judge to give that charge. Um, 
It's separate issue. Yeah, separate issue here is it is error for a trial court to refuse to give a requested charge on such things as accomplice corroboration. I'm glad you can say that word. I know, right? Where the evidence includes testimony from the accomplice and probably plain error if only evidence that connects the defendant to the crime is testimony of the accomplice. So think about that. I mean, you you need to, you, you are required to give that um, or if it's, it requested, error, right? if it's requested and if there is that evidence to support it. So we got to talk about Edge. And Tane, I don't know how long we've been talking about Edge. I mean, it's a 1992 case. And I bet we have spent several hours on it in the in the podcast series, don't oh, you? Oh, yeah, think? definitely. And and certainly even more than that in our new judge orientation. So we've had we discussed this exhaustively and we're not going to go real deep on what Edge is, but let me just let me try to paraphrase this, Tane, and then you can fix it in the mix if I get it wrong, okay? Sure. The issue in Edge was that if you tell the jury to first consider murder, malice or felony, doesn't matter, and then, and I've sort of underlined and italicized then, then consider manslaughter, that's error. The case is going to get reversed. That's right. If anything, do the opposite. Tell them to consider manslaughter first if you're just feeling compelled to make them go first and then but Tane, the 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 watchword and what we've told all of our friends and all of our NGO, NJOs, how about you try to come up with a charge that does not use the word then? Yeah, exactly. Don't things that are not um, chronological or sequential. You know, if then, um, and and I think the preparation for that has a lot to do with trying to put together a verdict form that makes sense and or 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 and we're going to talk about that in and, another podcast and in a second too in an episode you need if if you if you ever have this issue and you find yourself a little perplexed please go listen to the episode on verdict forms it's pretty short but it kind of goes in detail and tame in those uh episode notes Yes. We've actually put a verdict for him. I know, right? And that Which I think was really clever of us. Thank you. Yeah, you and I have been working on that for a long time. Um, so aggravated assault, Tane. Yeah. You can commit aggravated assault by pointing a gun at somebody. Yes, I can. You can commit aggravated assault by shooting someone or shooting at someone. Yes. You can use a knife. You can use your fist. You can. I, I had a um, table leg one time. Yeah. And so all of those are ways that you commit aggravated assault. And shout out to our friends on the um, Pattern Jury Instruction Committee who work like crazy trying to to follow the law and make some words that go together. One of the most thankless jobs in all of Absolutely. the and, oh, by the way, yes. they are working on trying to make them plain English. Shout out to Justice LaGrua for oh, yes. during her presidency. She God tried to them do that. that. So anyway... The pattern charge that's available, Tane, says no injury need be shown. Right. Well, if your indictment says by shooting him, that's that's not correct. That's right. And there is some case law that says that is reversible error. This is why when we get the charges, someone actually has to read them. And it is amazing to me. Uh, how many times, and, and I know it's because of you know being in a rush or having someone else help you prepare things, but it is amazing how many times I will get a request from the state 
to give a charge that isn't conformed to the indictment that the state <laughs> indicted. In other right. words, that, that there are things included in there uh, that, that, quite frankly, would be error for me to charge if I also included those. And inevitably, that's the only charge on that crime, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and now you've got to go, like, make one out of whole cloth. And, right. I mean, that's fun. <laughs> well, and, and one thing I'll say about that, too, folks, is, look, just because it's a pattern charge doesn't mean you charge every word of the pattern. You know, that's that's the, the, the problem that people run into is, well, I gave the pattern charge. Well, yeah, but you, you charged a whole bunch of ways that that crime can be committed that don't conform to the evidence in this particular case. Absolutely. So if you haven't, the, the, the note from Talton, and the case is called Talton, uh, T-A-L-T-O-N, versus State 254 Georgia Appeals 111, 2002 case, where they said, if you have an, a, an indicted charge of aggravated assault, you need to make sure the charge comports to what the indictment was. So Tane, let's talk about multiple defendants, oh, regardless yeah. of crime. Kind of a, kind of a big catch here that, that, it seems like a small thing, but it could be really huge. And that is when there are multiple defendants, you need to make sure that you always include a charge that directs the jury to consider each charge separately as to each defendant. Now think about that. That makes sense because sometimes defendants who are being tried together have done a whole lot of different stuff um, during the time that the crime was allegedly committed. And so you need to make sure that the jury understands that they need to con not, not consider them as a group, but consider them individually with respect to each charge. Limiting instructions. If you have given a limiting instruction when you admitted some 404B evidence or whatever, give it again. During, your during the final charge. And let's not assume that everybody knows exactly what we're talking about on that. So, so think about it. If you're giving um, evidence for a specific purpose, in other words, it's not something in this, in this case, but you're, you're letting the, it's usually the state, you're letting the state bring in other potential crimes, but they're unindicted. They're things that happened, you know. Uh, they out, could be indicted. I mean, they, whatever. Yeah, they could be indicted. That's right. But but other crimes or other things um, for the purpose of showing something that's, that's allowable under 404B, um, when you admit that, you're supposed to tell the jury, we're admitting this for a specific purpose, and here's what the purpose is. And, what, and for so, no other purpose. And for no other purpose. That's right. And so when you get to the end of the trial, you need to essentially remind them that you let them hear that evidence for a specific purpose and for that purpose only. So We have a whole chain important. of sites for that. Yeah, because it's, it's happened a bunch of times, and it's problematic sometimes. So what do you not have to charge, Tane? And this is the topic that makes my heart happy because that, that first document, that court's exhibit one that comes to me includes identity. It includes um, voluntariness of, of custodial statements. You ever seen that charge? Yeah, yeah. Or charges? Yeah, it's a like 10-page charge. And you're just going, but you're not contested. It wasn't. Right. Anyway. Right, right. There is no necessity, and we've got case law in here, that you have to charge the jury on voluntariness of a confession unless there is a specific request to do so. That's going to make you and your staff attorney and everybody else happy. Yeah, <laughs> take that whole 10-page charge out of there. There's no requirement, Tane, that you charge on identity unless identity is an issue. 
Yeah, and think about that. I mean, most of the cases, it's not, I mean, a lot of cases, identity's not an issue. It's that, you know, I didn't do this. Or, you know, I, I didn't, it was self-defense. I mean, you know, it's not that I didn't, that it wasn't me who committed this crime. It was that the crime was committed in a different way or, you know, there's a defense or whatever it might be. But none of it has to do with that's him. No, it's not. Exactly. And there's some case law, and we've got it in our, in our handy-dandy outline, it says just because a defendant raises a defensive alibi, that does not require a charge on identity, Tang. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of contrary to what you might automatically think. In addition, if the evidence doesn't support a justification charge, it's not required to give that charge. So, there, Tang, there was a period of time that, that we got confused. And we, as a collective, we, kind of like a nurse saying we need to take our medicine. Right. Um, Judges got confused because they were saying, well, then if you don't admit that you were there, you can't get a self-defense charge. Right. That's not the law. That's right. And you you can make that you can make that crazy closing argument of he wasn't there. But if he he was was there, (laughs) he didn't do that. You know, if you don't mind. I'm going to read Justice Namias's con- the first couple lines of his, or Chief Justice Namias's first couple lines of his concurring opinion in this big case, McClure, that was decided in 2019. Can I hum some patriotic music while you? While Absolutely. You do that? Okay. I concur fully in the court's opinion, which clarifies that when a defendant may obtain a jury instruction on an affirmative defense and reaffirms that the law allows a defendant to present inconsistent defenses so long as each defense is supported by at least slight evidence. There's that word. It is important to recognize, however, that what the law allows might be a really bad strategy for the defendant. Oh, oh I like that. Don't you like that? I know. It's kind of nice. I, I thought that, 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 that was pretty solid. Um, and if the defendant wants a justification charge, he is not required to admit any that he shot the person and he was there that, you know, it's not uncommon tame for somebody to uh, ask for a charge on accident and justification. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that kind of happens. So to just, just understand that that inconsistency doesn't mean you shouldn't charge on one or the other if it's requested. And tame, we always have the old favorite sole defense. That it, you are required to charge on the defendant's sole defense, even without a written request. But there's got to be some evidence to support that charge. But Tane, is good character a defense? Uh, no, it's not. And while evidence of good character is a substantive fact, which should be considered by the jury along with other facts tending to bear on the question of guilt or innocence, Evidence of good character is not a substantive defense. So, and I didn't just make that up. That's actually a quote from our Supreme Court. That's right. All right, Tane, we want to real quick touch on objections to charge, because I do that twice during this, during this process. It's not really directly related to charge conferences, but at the end of the charge conference, I'm going to ask and get both parties to put it on the record. Do you have any objections to the charges I plan to give following the charge conference. They can say whatever they want, but then they are locked in. See, there was a point in time, some of these old heads that have been around a minute and tried cases where lawyers were allowed to stand up and say, Judge, I want to reserve my objections to the charge. And so you could be just going hog wild and just completely charging something wrong, and there was no obligation to let the judge know. 
Yeah, that's not the law anymore. No, and you and I actually did a related podcast on uh, on this subject, basically saying that you know, in a lot of cases now under the under Georgia law, you got to give the judge a heads up. You can't play those games that you were once able to play, and this is one of those circumstances where yeah, you gotta you gotta say something. You can't sit there and not and not object. After I read the charge to the jury team, I'm going to ask them again. I do that as well. Unfortunately, it ha- I have been known to skip a line or skip a word and say guilty instead of not guilty or whatever. Not intentionally, of course, but it, it happens. And so anyway, I do it twice during that process. Yeah, and I think, I think that's a really good practice. I think to ask, what I do is once the jury has heard the charge, and has left to go back to the jury room, I then say, are there any additions or objections to the charge as read? And get that from both sides and see if there's anything else from them. So, Tane, um, we talked, we said we were going to bring up our old friend Plain Air. One of the things that you have to understand is Plain Air can come up in charge conferences and frankly does pretty regularly. You and I both know, if we're being real honest with each other, I don't know that the jurors listening to 90% of what you said. It sounds like the Charlie Brown's teacher for the most part. Right. But at the end of the day, you can get a plain error um, reversal, even without an objection. And it may be, frankly, that the lawyers aren't reading along with you or whatever, but, but that can happen. Yeah, and, and, and that's going to be on important points and things that are you know critical to the case one way or the other. And so, um, you, you know, if you're, really good, yeah. if you're really good, the other people who are also listening to you while you're giving that charge are your court reporter and your staff attorney who will say, hey, judge, I think you missed a word on something or I think you said not and it should have been should or whatever. Um, so let's recap what we've learned today, Tang. Kind of like Dr. Mr. Rogers. Sure. Jury charge conferences are incredibly important, but they are just as much fun for the judges as they are for the lawyers and the parties who attempt to flee the courtroom. Absolutely. Yeah. As we were about to talk about a little while ago, or as I mentioned, this is one of the times, the charge conference is a time where you need to slow down. Um, There's no reason to rush through this process. It's really important. Um, I know we're always worried about timing and, oh, gosh, it's getting late on Friday. We need to get this chart, this case to the jury. But this is not something to, to, to give short shrift. So take your time, slow down. And again, like I said earlier, build in some time for yourself. You know, tell the jury, hey, look, we're just going to give you a break for the next two hours so that you can eat some lunch and, you know, give us time to do this. And it also, Tane, it allows you a lot more freedom when you're reading that charge to simply read it instead of sort of in the back of your mind going, wait a minute, did I say defendant had a burden? Or <laughs> Yeah. So I talked about my core charges. If anyone wants a copy of them for, to save themselves a weekend, all they've got to do is send us an email. Where do they send that email, Tane? Send it to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. I'm happy to save you a weekend. I already gave it up. There ain't no sense in both of us doing it. That's right. And um, if you forget that incredibly difficult email address, you can always find our website, goodjudgepod.com. But you can remember that. If you can't remember that address, you can probably remember to add the word Gmail and an at symbol. Anyway, visit our website for this outline and a zillion other case sites. The outline will be posted at the website, goodjudgepod.com. Well, with those, all of those deep thoughts and uh, jury on um, jury charge conferences, 
That wraps up today's episode, Tane. Thanks to everybody in listener land for bearing with us in our stupidity. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And as always, wash your hands after podcasting, people. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.